This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. First Peter, as Peter writes to those who are in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Little Rock, Arkansas. Peter writes, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which we preach to you. The late and distinguished professor at the University of Chicago, the professor of philosophy, Alan Bloom, once pointed out that behind what the world knows as American culture, and behind what the world envies as America's preeminence among the nations of the world, and behind America's vast economic and social wealth lies two documents. Different cultures come from different roots, but Bloom says that American culture flows from simply two books. The first of those is that marvelous document that we call the United States Constitution. And the other document is that miraculous book that we call the Bible. Bloom says that this or these two documents are the heart and the soul of what America has known for 200 years as its culture. But I want you to know, having said that, it's important for us, I think, today to also recognize that, you know, our country, our America, our culture is in the midst of a vast social transition. And as America spins through this transition and as we feel the tensions that this transition creates in us and in our land, these two documents that have been the foundation of American culture now find themselves under attack. The wisdom that they have offered us through the ages and through the generations is now deemed by a number of so-called experts to be outdated and antiquated and time-bound and in a number of cases irrelevant and socially backwards. You know, judges today, many judges in our land no longer feel bound by our U.S. Constitution and their rulings. And we, the people of the United States, oftentimes no longer feel bound by the proclamations and pronouncements and promises that we know in the Bible for our lifestyles. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and so I'm not going to address this morning, of course, the crisis in constitutional law that you find in a number of our law schools and legal institutions, but I am a theologian. And as a theologian, I do want to speak to you this morning about the crisis that surrounds the Bible. It's a crisis that has gone on for centuries because the Bible will always be a book under attack. That's because the Bible claims to be authoritative. It claims to have authority over you and over me and over everyone. And that's a claim that invites, doesn't it, 
controversy in the culture. Indeed, anyone who finally comes after listening to the Word of God or hearing its claims, anyone who finally comes to a place that they reject those claims and establish a new philosophy of life, come in time because of the irritation of us Christians, finally comes in times to resent the Bible. And inevitably, part of the culture will want to attack the Bible. That was true in the first century. You know, the word that I just read were written to Christians who at the time were finding themselves under attack for their beliefs, for their belief in the Word of God. Some of the very Christians who will receive this letter from Peter when it was written in the first century will be some of the Christians who will be persecuted and executed under the reign of Nero. But not only that, the emperor that followed Nero, Diocletian, he turned up the heat even more on the whole Roman culture. In fact, he passed laws through the Roman Senate that made it a capital offense against the state of Rome to even possess a Bible. If you were caught with a Bible, you were executed. That was the kind of early hostility that was manifested to those who believed against the Word of God, and at least in the Roman Empire, was tried to be suppressed through just simply brute force. But what about our day? Remember I said American culture is founded on two documents, one of which is the Bible. And you know, as we look across the landscape of our heritage, these 200 plus years that we've been a nation, we find that there have been two occasions in which the Bible has come under attack publicly. Once occurred 100 years ago, during the 1890s, and the other is occurring right now in the 1990s. Let's talk about the first one in the 1890s. You know, in the 1890s, as we moved from an agrarian culture into an industrial culture into the new industrial age, there were new philosophies, new scientific discoveries, a new belief in the preeminence of man, and even to the place that people began to believe that man didn't need God anymore. The German theologian Friedrich Nietzsche said that God was dead. He was irrelevant, so to speak. He was no longer necessary for the new age in which we are entering, this great, magnificent, marvelous, hopeful, promising 20th century. And so in all of that, a hostility grew against those who believed in the authority of God's Word. And an attack was made on the Bible at the close of the 19th century. And in the 1890s, the attack upon the Bible was primarily historical. It was deemed by many to be historically inaccurate. Now, how did they come to that conclusion? Well, now that we look back, we know they came to that conclusion based on some presuppositions that were deposited during that particular generation. You see, in the 1890s, science suddenly, for the first time, overtook theology as the preeminent authority. And one of those who led the charge was a man by the name of Charles Darwin. And Darwin set his evolution of the species kind of theory before humanity. And suddenly it became, in a sense, fact that man was not a created being, he was an evolved being. He was not a divine miracle. He was a cosmic mistake of time and chance. That was man. And if that were true, that meant the Bible was untrue. And if the Bible was untrue at that fundamental point of belief and of presentation, then certainly the Bible must also be untrue at a number of other places in its presentation. So by this assumption, and I want you to know it was by that assumption that suddenly a whole group of intellectuals and, quote, higher critics arose that convinced many 
in the early part of the 20th century with their complex theories that much of the Bible was not only historically inaccurate, but it was also mythical in nature. Indeed, the Bible was nothing more than a collection of stories that over hundreds of years had been polished, had, an up, had been updated, had been upgraded, had been rearranged numerous times until it too had evolved into what appeared to us to be the Word of God. That philosophy and that theory captured the minds of thousands and thousands of people and led many people into unbelief. This historical attack on the Bible lasted well into the 20th century until something really unexpected happened, something unique, something surprising, and that was that science, namely archaeology, suddenly changed sides in the fierce debate. It suddenly began to side with the Bible rather than against the Bible. Indeed, the preeminent historian Paul Johnson, if you know anybody that knows history, that name is preeminent among world historians today. Paul Johnson has gone so far to say that one of the most dramatic turnabouts of the 20th century is that science, once an enemy of Christians and Christianity and the Bible at the beginning of the 20th century, is now the friend of Christianity at the end of the 20th century. For instance, let me give you only a few for instances. Higher critics at the beginning of this century argued that the Bible was an evolving document, always changing. We just don't know how it changed because we weren't back there, but it was always being updated, as I said, and upgraded to make it look like the divine Word of God. But you know, when we discovered through archaeology things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that had many of the books of the Old Testament, and as we discovered many, many New Testament manuscripts, some of which date back to the second century A.D., just a generation within the time of Jesus Christ. As we have those documents in our hand, we can examine them. We can carbon-14 date them. What we find is not a Bible that's been ever-changing, but just the opposite. We find a Bible back then that looks just like the Bible we have now. We find a Bible that's been stable, fixed, static, consistent, and unchanging. That's what we found. The higher critics at the beginning of the 20th century also dismissed many of the events of the Bible, not as historical as I said, but as mythical. But you know what? The spate of the archaeologist has slowly, consistently uncovered just the opposite. It has reaffirmed and affirmed the Bible as a historically reliable textbook. For instance, the critics said that Moses could not have written the first five books of the Bible. Moses lived thousands of years ago, and at the turn of the 20th century, no one had found any written languages that date back as far as Moses. So Moses simply gave us the, the first five books of the Bible, or some of those first five books, through oral tradition, and somebody copied it, and then somebody polished them, and so on and so forth. But the archaeologist spade has uncovered just the opposite on this side of the 20th century. Not only have we found that written languages were prevalent at the time of Moses, we found written languages, very sophisticated written languages, 1,500 years before the time of Moses. The critics said that Nineveh, the Assyrian capital to which Jonah, the mythical prophet who went there, was a myth. The city, the empire was a myth. Why? Because at the beginning of the 20th century, no one had ever found any historical reference of any kind in any of the great works of ancient history, any reference to the city of Nineveh. 
So Nineveh was just simply a myth, something made up by somebody, we don't know who, back there who wrote the story of Jonah and the big fish. But then you had a British archaeologist by the name of Henry Rawlison who did a most impertinent thing to that theory. He dug up the entire city of Nineveh. You know, the higher critics said that the Hittites were just a mythical people. You know, the Hittites were one of the enemies of Israel. They're mentioned over 40 times in the Old Testament. There has never been a reference, a historical reference outside the Bible to the Hittites. That is until Dr. Hugo Winkler uncovered the city of Bohas Kivi, the capital of the Hittites, and found their library and found that many of the things that the Bible records about the Hittites were recorded in those ancient documents by the Hittites themselves. The Bible was a historical book, not a mythical book in that regard. The higher critics said Luke's accounts of Jesus' birth were faulty on a number of accounts. No scholar had ever found any record of a census being taken in the Roman Empire at the turn of the 20th century. The governor of Syria, Quirinius, who's mentioned in Luke's account as being the governor at the time of Jesus' birth, that was obviously faulty because we had a historian back in Jesus' day named Josephus, and he recorded that Quirinius was governor of Syria, but at a much later date, six or seven years after the time of Jesus' birth. So there's obviously an error. And also, there was never any historical record of a people having to go back to their ancient ancestral home for the census enrollment, like Luke said of Joseph and Mary. So the higher critic denounced Luke he called Luke a storyteller, not a historian. And anybody that would believe in stories for their salvation was a fool. But now archaeologists have uncovered such records. We have found that in the Roman Empire, starting with Caesar Augustus, they did take censuses every 14 years. And we discovered a papyrus in Egypt that told us that Quirinius was governor six years after the birth of Jesus, but being a politician, he had another term that occurred seven years before the birth of Jesus. He was a two-term governor. And because of that, he was there at the birth of Jesus Christ. We also found another papyrus whose words tell us that people were asked to go back to their ancestral home. In fact, I'll read you the words on the papyrus. It says this, because of the approaching census, it is necessary that all those residing for any reason away from their home should at once prepare to return to their own governments in order that they may complete their family registration. Well, now we have proof that Luke was not a storyteller. Luke was a historian. Luke was offering us facts. You know, I would love to sit up here and take the next hour and just tell you story after story because some of the greatest archaeological finds have occurred in the last five years. You know, we used to think Caiaphas, the high priest, was an absolute myth. It was taught even as late or early, if you want to put it that way, of just four or five years ago. But last year, on the east side of Jerusalem, they dug up a tomb. And it had Caiaphas, high priest, written on it. More and more of that comes to us every day. And I'd like to just kind of sum this up from, of all places, Time Magazine. Time Magazine put it this way in an article entitled, How True is the Bible? And here's what Time said, The breadth, sophistication, and diversity of all this historical analysis is impressive. And it begs a question. How has it made the Bible more credible or less? After more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps better for the siege 
even on the critic's own terms. Historical facts. The Scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began their attack. You know, when I read that, I just want to throw a party. I want to celebrate. I want to say, man, isn't that exciting? I want to get excited and just think, look, history, science, they've come together in the Bible. It's helped us affirm and reconfirm the accuracy of the presentations of the historical events that flow out of the Scriptures and, and then hopefully with them, the spiritual truths that are joined to those historical facts. It, it would almost seem that, that Christians today could be flouting it a little bit, puffing out their chest and say, see, we told you it was true, but you know, just about the time that I want to get excited, the critics changed the whole battle. The whole war has changed. Nobody cares if the Bible is historically accurate today. Nobody gets excited when another historical facts except the church, the Christians. Society doesn't care because the battle has moved to a whole different battlefield where the war is being fought on a totally different battle plan. You see, in the 1990s, the war shifted and the attack on the Bible today is primarily social. It may be historically accurate, but the critics say it's socially irrelevant. The battles go something like this, and you'll feel the tension of our day, and you'll understand what I mean when I go through this list. Telling teenagers not to have sex is ridiculous. They're only going to do it anyway. That's their nature. What we need to do is protect them in their sex. Who are you to tell me that I can't have a divorce? What gives you the authority? Don't you understand? I'll be happier and my kids will be happier. Who are you to tell me I can't have an abortion? Haven't you read the Supreme Court decision of 73? It's my right. Don't tell me my sexual preference is misguided. If there's anybody who's misguided, or may I say pathological, it's you, you homophobic. Stay home with my children. Don't you understand? I've got a life to live for myself. Promise keepers? Uh, that's just a veiled term for the return of male oppression and the subjugation of women across our land. It's a move backward, not forward. You feel the tension, don't you? And the tension is being fought everywhere because we are in the midst today in our great social transition of culture wars. That's where we are today. And the clashes are highly charged and they're highly emotional. They polarize people and America is a polarized country today between left and right, liberal and conservative, fundamentalist and kook. It's where we are today. And we all know that and we don't like that. We don't like the fact that we can go to the same school and feel alienation from the very parents our kids go with because they hold such a different philosophy from us. And we listen on talk radio, and one's at this extreme and the other's at that extreme. We live in a polarized land. And at the core of these conflicts, if you can believe it or not, I'm going to throw something out to you that's going to kind of sound, well, where are you getting that from? At the core of these conflicts, I believe, is an attack on biblical truth that shaped our culture and our institutions and our policies and our values and our laws, and our social mores. It's an indirect attack. Nobody brings the Bible up and says we're attacking the Bible. But because of what our culture 
how our culture was built. And now what we're changing it to become, the Bible finds itself in that vice and under attack as to whether its values are really socially relevant or not. One of our local editorialists this week headlined his article this way. He said, promise keepers live in the past. Does that feel good? Can you hear his subtle argument in that? I want you to follow the argument because you need to think here. Here's what he's saying. These guys are social antiques. They live in the petrified world of yesterday. And what they're wanting is simply socially out of step with where America is and is going. Now I want you to notice, like so many other others, he doesn't attack the Bible directly, but indirectly he does. You know why? Because Promise Keepers is a biblical movement that does live in the past. It does. It takes its directions from the past. It takes its mores from the past. It takes its structure from the past. And you know who else does that? It's not just Promise Keepers. It is the church of Jesus Christ. We're a people of the past. I want you to know it's a compliment when people say that Fellowship Bible Church lives in the past. We do. We draw our life from the past. We draw our life from a historical figure from the past. We draw our direction. We draw our social values from a book written in the past. That's us. And never until now in the 1990s have we ever had to apologize for it. But with this social transition and pressure, that's what I'm feeling. I've got to apologize for what I believe about marriage and about my leadership in the home, and about what I believe is to be sexually right and wrong, and what I believe about marriage and divorce, and about parenting, and what kids need, and when life begins. I've got to apologize that because I'm living in the past. Don't you understand that? Don't you feel that pressure? And yet now, biblical truths that have for generations shaped this country to make it what it is, to give it the prosperity and freedoms it has enjoyed, those biblical truths are now pictured as holding women back and putting women down and making people miserable in their sexual preferences and condemning them in their genetic predispositions and standing against the law of hormones. You feel it? Have I made the case for the social irrelevancy of our beliefs? That's the attack on the Bible today. This is where we are. And the question before every American in this great social transition is whose word do you believe? Do you believe the new modern theorist who is depositing these new thought patterns that American culture need to gravitate to. The new social engineers are, do you believe an old book? That's where we are. And anybody that tells you anything different is missing the point. That's where you are. That's why now attack promise keepers around headship of the man in the home. Look how foolish, stupid, antiquated, outdated that is. Is it? May I say something tacky here this morning since I'm kind of starting to get heated up? 
I think we need a little relief here for a moment. You would have to have the IQ of a poached egg, really, to believe that America is socially better for having abandoned the old book. You would. Juvenile crime with the new look of America is skyrocketing due to irresponsible, self-absorbed parents. One in two marriages end in divorce, but you know it's okay because legally it's nobody's fault. One in three children are born in America today. One in three out of wedlock. And there is more and more, not less and less, spousal abuse, child abuse. And where is that coming from? Is it coming from the book or the new individualism that's rampant in our day? One in four adults now have the sexually transmitted disease called herpes. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse is rampant. Do you see it in our junior highs, our high schools, our colleges? One out of three pregnancies end in abortion. 90 million Americans are functionally illiterate today. And you and I, we live in fear in the very communities in which we live. It used to be you could go anywhere in Little Rock, anywhere in any small town, our big city. But now we have no-go zones at night, and we lock our doors, and we bolt our gates, and we live in gated communities. And you know why? Because we're under siege by the new culture. In our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., it's statistically easier to die by murder in Washington, D.C. than it was for a soldier in Vietnam to be killed. So where are we living today? But let me tell you, that's not the worst of it. The worst thought of all is that now we live in a culture where there is no shame for any of it. There's no shame. We're trying to get solutions, but we don't want to speak a word of judgment on any of it because it's everybody's right to do what they want. That is what cutting our ties to the past has brought us. And I would like to just simply quote a great preacher in the late 1800s who was, had his Bible under attack for historical inaccuracy. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in England, because what he said about the attack on the Bible in his day is totally relevant for the social attack on our Bible in our day. Here's what he said. If you want to be thought very wise today, but look very foolish in about 50 years, then attack the Bible. Point out all its errors. But if you're willing to be thought foolish now, a fundamentalist, now he's speaking 100 years ago, a fundamentalist or whatever, but believing that in 50 years you will be vindicated for your beliefs, and you just go right ahead and believe the Bible. I got another way of saying it. In 50 years after we've experienced the full reality, the full fruit, and the full bloom of unchecked careerism, feminism, gay rights, abortion, roleless marriages, rampant pornography, and violence of every kind displayed through every medium for the sake of entertainment. I promise you in 50 years, we'll be mourning over this land. And we will say to ourselves, maybe behind closed doors in whispers, oh my God, what have we done to ourselves? The old book, it was right. Now you know it doesn't have to be that way. We do not have to have a land like that. I'm not a pessimist at all. I'm an optimist by nature. And I believe as people of the book, we should be optimists. We can turn the corner 
in this transition back to truth and back to societal health. But let me tell you, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because Christians like us, and I want you to feel the significance of yourself today, it will be because Christians like us have rallied to the place of living out radically in our lifestyles in this old canvas, the truth. The truth. We've lived out the Word in real life, the truth. We believed the book. We didn't apologize for it. And we've lived it out in such a way that it had a powerful effect on society. George Gallup did a poll not long ago in which he found that only 13% of church-going Christians actually have their lifestyles affected by what they believe. But he said something incredibly positive. When he examined that 13% of the Christians who really were living out what they believed, he said they were the most powerful social force in American culture today. Now that is an incredible statement. What if it became 50%? 100%? What if you and I, what if this entire congregation began to actually live out in a broad-based but specific way the Word of God, the truth in this body that we have for a short, brief period of time on a little planet in a speck of a universe, but to the glory of God. What would happen? That's what I'm calling for you to do today. And that's what Peter was calling for these Christians living in an oppressive environment. That's what he was calling them to do. And he said, if you'll listen to the truth, the truth will do four things for you. And I want to look now at 1 Peter and see those four things. Here's what he said it would do. First of all, it would purify my motives. And it would inspire in me an authentic and irresistible love. Look at verse 22. He says, since you have in obedience, the key word, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, then fervently love one another from the heart. You know what the Bible is? It's a soul. As you ingest it, as you take it in, it seeks out all those corrosive elements that would gunk up your love life. And I'm not talking intimacy with your wife. I'm talking the way you love everyone, people. Some of those messed up people in relationships are people who are just trying to do it the way they think it ought to be. But those corrosives just eat their relationships up. If they would just simply go back to the book and they would look at how to love, they would find the book kind of moving into their soul and attacking some of their selfish motives and some of the things that they think is right, but the Bible says is obsessive or indulgent or selfish. But the Bible also points out how to love and where to love and where to invest your love in. And as you listen to that and solve it, it begins to put pressure on your life. And you know what it begins to do? It begins to allow you to love in a powerful, powerful way. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, maybe in church, maybe in a community group or whatever, and you start talking about what the Bible says, how we're to relate to one another, and all of a sudden you start feeling that pressure because there's someone you're out of sorts with, there's someone you haven't loved rightly, and the Bible's coming on you and it's pressing you. And you feel that pressure to go love rightly. And you know what happens when you listen to that? You love rightly, and life begins to change in a powerful way for you. These early Christians heard the Word of God and they loved rightly. And their fervent love conquered an entire empire within 300 years. Did you know that? They were a minority. They were beaten down, scorned, hated. And you know what they simply did? 
in reaction to all the things that they, were happening to them, all the persecution they were under, they just simply loved one another. And Will Durant, the great historian, sums up this battle between these struggling Christians in this powerful empire with a final statement in his volume, Caesar and Christ. Here's what he says. There is no greater drama in the human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned and oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, but multiplying quietly, building order where their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word and brutality with love, and at last, defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. You know, we live in a society where sometimes you feel pressed and persecuted and put down. The image of Christians is not high in America today. And there are ways that we can defend ourselves against that. We can come up with very superior arguments and the world won't listen. We can create social protest and rarely does the world listen. Or we can do like helping hands and go to them and love them. Build bridges into their communities. Get with their people, our people with their people and do good works. And you know what will happen out of those love connections? We'll change the city. I hope you believe that. We will change this city if we will get out in the city and love them with a fervent, fervent spirit. Now I want you to note, in order to love them, we've got to be loving each other. And here's what I want to ask you. When I talk about loving one another fervently, the question I would ask before I move on if I talk about loving rightly, is there someone in this congregation that you don't like? That you have a case against? That you have a problem with? God brings somebody to mind at this point. You know what you need to do? You need to go to the book. Because you're going to probably say, but I don't like them. They did this, this, and this. I got a case against them. I know you do. But if you want to love rightly, you'll go to the book and take your case to the book and let the book present a case back to you and find out from the book how to love. Because if you do that, you'll knit this community in even a more powerful way together. And the more powerful we become as a community, the more of an opportunity we have with the world around us. That's what the Word of God does. It allows us to love one another rightly. Secondly, notice in verse 23, it creates in me and in others a new life. Look at verse 23. It says, for you, that is us, we've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding Word of God. You know, I am so glad that somebody cared enough about my soul, aren't you? That somebody cared enough about me in my most unregenerate, unloving form. They cared enough about my soul to speak the Word of God to me. Because if they hadn't, I wouldn't be here. And I just simply dread where I would be. Do you feel that way? You know, it says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. But you know what else it says? It says, and how shall they, that is the world, believe in Him who they've never heard about? That's the haunting question for the American church today. Because the answer is that people won't believe if they don't hear. But who's going to take it to them? Who's going to take it to them? As American Christianity gets smaller and smaller, as its growth rate dwindles to a paltry 1%, while the rest of the world's evangelism is booming, who is going to take it to them? Who cares enough about the soul of the person working next to you? About that family member? That friend? 
Who cares? You know, if you don't, if you don't, we're in trouble. But we have the power to create new life everywhere that we go. You know, I can't think of a greater goal in life to have as a Christian who has heard the mandate of the Word of Jesus Christ on me, not the preacher, not the staff, not the church to do it, me, has heard the mandate on me that I should go and make disciples. Me. You may be saying, I can't do that. Why can't you? Why can't you? Other than your flesh not wanting to. Why can't you? I think a worthy goal for any person in this audience would be that we would feel the pain of the world around us to such a degree that it would break our heart. And we would be willing to go out at least once a year to pray for an opportunity to lead one person to Christ as a thank you note for Jesus' salvation of us. That we would give enough time, tithe enough time every year to bring one additional person into the kingdom. If we don't, then there's no one to blame for America's social condition. Notice thirdly, what the Word of God does for us is it joins me to a world of lasting impact. There's that great verse from Isaiah, requoted here by Peter about the, the glory of man fading like the grass and the flower falling off. But the, listen, the Word of God abides forever. You know what that says to me? That says to me, if I kind of step into the stream of the Word of God, I'm stepping into a world of lasting impact. What I'm going to do is going to count forever. I'm going to be significant. A friend of mine, Bob Buford, who wrote the book, Halftime, that a number of you have read, had the chance to be with Bob this week out in California. And Bob just simply went back through his, what he called his search that occurred a number of years back as a successful businessman where he went, as he calls it, from success to significance. And you know what the Word of God does? It takes anybody of any age, at any time, in any place, in any condition. And if you'll believe it and get in its stream, you'll move from wherever you are to significance. Something that will last forever. Broken home? Yeah. But you'll move to significance. Empty life? Yeah. But you'll move to significance. Divorce? Yeah. But you'll move to significance. Lost my business? Yes. But you can move to significance. Aimless and empty? Yeah. But you can move to significance. After the service, I had a young man I prayed with this week who had come up on the stage a number of weeks ago and struggled with his relationship with his dad. And we prayed this last week for him. And lo and behold, out of those prayers, his dad called and for the first time they connected. And he had a chance to share his heart with his dad and his dad said something he thought he'd never hear from. His dad said, I'm sorry. But you know what he's doing by faith? He's moving from that wound to significance. And everyone in this audience is highly significant to God. But you'll only get into that significance through the Word of God. That's what the Word can do for you. But you've got to believe it. Then lastly, we're going to move into chapter 2 just for a moment because it says that the Word fuels the personal development that God desires for me. Notice what it says. He says, therefore, when he says therefore, he's really referring back to what he's just said. He says, therefore, since the Word of God purifies my life, that's one thing, it gives me new life. It, it leads me to significance. Because of that, I should do something. 
And now he's going to say there's two things you should do. There's something you should not do or you should stop doing and there's something that you should do. Here's the way he says it. He says, therefore now, stop doing this. Put aside all malice. That is, the evil that's in you. Those evil intentions to get even. To get right justice on your terms. Are all guile and hypocrisy. That is, that phoniness where you go around pretending you're one way, but behind the mask you're another way. Put all, aside all envy and slander, that jealousy that eats you up from the inside because you want what other people have, and if you can't have it, you're going to tear them down. Put that aside in light of the fact that God has something significant. He's got a new life and a new love for you. Put that aside. And He says, and like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word. Grow. Long for it and grow in respect to your salvation. You know, I've been present at all the births of my children. And man, the excitement of seeing that new birth. You know, but the first thing I notice about all those little babies, when they're delivered and put on mama's chest, you know what they do? They all have that look of, you know what they're doing? They're longing for the pure milk. That's what they're doing. They have an instinctive desire to grow and they know where to go. Now here's the question. Do you? Do you? Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Do you know where to go? Maybe one of your kids are in trouble. Do you know where to go? Maybe financially, you know, you're successful but it doesn't mean anything anymore. Do you know where to go? The Bible says, long for the pure milk of the Word, the truth, and let it fill your life and believe it. And if you will believe it, what will happen 50 years from now is not like the communist who 50 years ago believed in communism and now stands in the rubble of it. 50 years from now, you'll stand in the mature satisfaction of a life well lived and one that's going to be recognized all the way into eternity. That's what the Scripture is offering if you'll believe it. And the question is, who do you believe? Whose Word? Whose Word do you believe? The social critic? Now? The poll you read this week in USA Today? Or an old book? That's the question. But I want you to remember this. The grass will wither. And the flower will fade. And philosophies will come and go. And heroes will pass away. And your dreams and your lovers, they will die. Nations will rise and fall. Empires will crumble. But the Word of our God, it will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You. We thank You for this, once again, an encouragement to us to go to the truth. And how I pray for my brothers and my sisters in Christ, all of us, myself included, that this week, like a newborn babe, we would go to Your Word. And we would go to it not just to read it, but we would go to it with an attitude. An attitude that's longing to hear and to obey because we believe it to be the truth. Give us that kind of heart. And make us that kind of church. And allow us, Lord, to see good days in our community because we've chosen to believe You radically. We ask that in the name of Christ our Savior, our Lord, our God. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.